Our friend Jeff Bezos turned heads last November. He spent $78 million on a 14-acre estate in Maui. Uh, When interviewed, locals are nervous about his coming presence. One said, it's hard to know what Bezos' intentions are this early on, whether he's going to be a benefit or a burden on the surrounding community. 14 acres is pretty measly compared to Mark Zuckerberg's footprint on Kauai. He recently bought another 600 acres there, bringing his total acreage on that island to 1,300 acres. But billionaire Larry Ellison, who's the co-founder of Oracle, has them both beat for bragging rights when it comes to owning pieces of Hawaii. Since 2012, Larry Ellison has owned 98% of the island Lanai, which is the Hawaiian island west of Maui, 87,000 acres he owns uh, on that island. His goal is to transform it into a utopia, he says. His wealth and this Hawaiian project he's working on has led to Ellison, quote, advising many U.S. presidents over the last 39 years on strategic direction for our country. Sounds a little bit like our text tonight, if you ask me. Abimelech, the Philistine king, shows up at Abraham, the wealthy sheik's front door, and he asks for a meeting. He wants to work out an arrangement with this pilgrim that's sojourning through his land. But it's not just the flocks and the herds and the household operations that Abimelech has noticed. Something much more significant has caught his eye. And that's the presence of God in the life of this strange old man. Uh, And he's going to say so outright. If you're a Christian here tonight, you have been scattered where and when you are by God on purpose. He places us somewhere and sometime so that we can shine like lights in the dark. Have you been to that field of light sensorial place in Paso Robles? We went um, on like a little field trip thing a while back. Uh, Kind of interesting. If you don't know what it is, you go and it's dark and they have all the lights everywhere off. So you like fall in the parking lot. But you finally go through... And they've got those rolling hills over there in Paso Robles, and you kind of come over a hill, and then they have this big field, and there's just a ton of little, um, I guess I would just call them sort of fiber optic lights that kind of glow and hum and, and change colors and things like that. So Christians, in a sense, are God's light show that he puts on this earth, bringing truth and beauty to a world that is in the pitch black dark. As we live, the Bible tells us we are to do so peaceably, we are to do so quietly. It goes as far as saying that we are to do so not dependent on others, Paul says. But while living quiet lives, God plans to use you to show the unbelievers around you what the light is all about, meaning just how glorious this God is. Your, your life is meant to be um, not only a life of, of service and, and projects that you do for the Lord and with the Lord, but also we see in the New Testament God refers to us as, as his poema, his craftsmanship, his masterpiece. You are an art display, a, a, a display of light art that God has cast into human history so that he can demonstrate his love, his glory, his truth, and his hope to a lost and dying world. 
Abraham's meeting with Abimelech and their conflict resolution together gives us a great example that we can apply to our own day-to-day living because we are people who desire to glorify God and draw others to Him. So if you're a Christian here tonight and you think, I want to glorify God, I want to draw other people to God because that's what the Bible says, you know, the Lord has me on earth here to do, great, here's an example of a faithful believer doing just that. Verse 22 of Genesis 21 says this, At that time, Abimelech, accompanied by Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now, it says at that time, a lot was going on in Abraham's life at the time. Hagar and Ishmael had just been expelled from the house. Uh, uh, Hagar had been around for at least 20 years. Ishmael is 17, 16 years old. That is a big deal that they got kicked out. Uh, Abraham and Sarah have a new baby at home. They've never had a baby like this before. They raised Ishmael, but this is a whole new thing. He's 100 years old. She's 90 years old. That's a big deal. There were the constant and continual needs of the many flocks and herds. There's hundreds of people who live in their household. So they have a lot going on. Uh, God wants to use you, whether you're terribly busy or terribly unoccupied, okay? I mean, so sometimes we think, you know, uh, I don't have anything going on. I don't have anything to offer. God wants to use you even if you don't really have a lot going on in your personal life. But you know what? More often, we're all overscheduled, over busy, too many obligations, too many things going on. Okay, uh, God still wants to use you. Uh, and we're not as busy as Abraham was busy in this, in this text. And, and God dropped this incredible opportunity in his lap. And, and it's important to notice here that this meeting, this opportunity, this situation was not Abraham's idea. He didn't think, hey, I, I'm an important person. I have a lot of prominence. I have a lot of sort of uh, ability to throw my weight around. So why don't I go and talk to the king and be a good influence on him? It wasn't his idea at all. It just dropped in his lap one day. But what was great about Abraham is that he was ready to be God's man in the room right? And so one of the things that we want to be growing in as Christians is not trying to do God's business for him in the sense of, hey, God, I have this idea. I'm going to slap your name on the banner, and then I'm going to do it because I think it's a good idea. That's a bad way to do ministry, right? That's not a spirit-led way to do ministry. We want to be people who are being directed by our master, directed by our savior, being told, you know, who to go to and when to do that, all those sorts of things. But at the same time, we want to grow in our capacity to be ready when the Lord does bring us a sudden opportunity to be ready to be God's man in the room, God's woman in the room, and say, yes, I can help there, or yes, I can talk to you about the truth. Yes, I can talk to you about the Lord of heaven and earth. It's like in the television trope, right, where somebody passes out, uh, you know, in the restaurant, what does everybody shout out? Is there a doctor in the room? right? So you want to be God's man, God's woman in the room and say, yes, I am here and I'm ready to talk to you about this God who lives with me. Now, Abimelech represents for us the unbelievers you cross paths with in daily life. Most of us aren't hobnobbing with kings, but he can just stand in for those unbelievers in your life. And he's fascinating to watch in this text because Really, he's so many different things at once. People are complicated. 
He's a little bit slippery in the way that he acts, if we're being honest. But we see he's also courteous and respectful. He wants to hold the upper hand in his dealings with Abraham, we'll see. But he also wants to be at peace with him. He's not trying to drive him away outright. He's interested in this relationship Abraham has with God, but he also clearly wants to intimidate Abraham a little bit as they talk. This is not just a friendly pop-in, okay? The king doesn't show up with his general for a friendly pop-in. You know, if, if, if somebody knocked on your door tonight and it is... President Joe Biden and a bunch of Secret Service guys, do you think they just want a cup of tea? They probably don't. Probably something else is going on. And so uh, this, is, this is not just a casual get-together. You know, this is a pretty serious gathering. What Abimelech says is significant there. He says, God is with you in everything you do. Abimelech had been watching Abraham. Remember, Abraham had wronged Abimelech. He had, he had really treated him pretty poorly. He had lied to him about his wife, Sarah. He said, well, she's my sister, and then that whole thing. And then God came and showed up to this guy's house, and he says, you're a dead man. I'm going to wipe you and all your people out. There was some plague afflicting them. And then Abraham comes and kind of doubles down on that lie and says, well, it wasn't a whole lie. It was kind of a truth. And so it's just kind of a bad situation, bad first impression. And yet, you know, they kind of were living there in proximity to one another. And since then, Abimelech has been keeping a watch on this guy, because Abraham was very powerful, very prominent, very wealthy. And on top of that, his flocks and herds took up a lot of resources. We're talking about agrarian communities. We're talking about things where land and, and pastures and those sorts of things really matter, right? So when Larry Ellison moves into your country, you pay attention because he's going to soak up all of the stuff, right? That's the idea. And so he had been watching, and the more that he watched, the more he came to this conclusion, something supernatural is going on in this weird guy's life. I can't explain it. He probably watched him as these different things and heard rumors about, yeah, they have this unrest at home and, and, and Abraham's doing this with flocks and this with herds and, and he'd hear, heard things and maybe even sent out word and they said, yeah, we heard he went and conquered all these kings a bunch of years ago. And so he's watching him. And the more that he watches, the more he comes to this conclusion that God, a real God, is with him. And so when he looked at Abraham, he said, something is different about you than, than I find in my own life. Something is different about you than I find in the rest of the people in my kingdom here. There is a spiritual vitality that can only be explained by the real supernatural presence of a real God. Now, Abraham was not a miracle worker. Abraham's life wasn't free from problems. They're full of problems, a lot of interpersonal problems. Abraham wasn't perfect. Abimelech knew that firsthand. And it wasn't as if Abraham was the only wealthy herdsman in the area. And yet, despite all of that, because of the grace of God and the goodness of God, this man's life was like a light in the dark. And the reason was not because Abraham did so much or achieved so much. From Abimelech's perspective, Abraham was sort of a hypocrite, right? At least on one level. But because a real and holy God was present in Abraham's life, because Abraham was walking with God and was surrendered to God, though imperfectly, we see what a difference that made in Abraham's life. And that people could look at him and say, something's different. I don't quite understand how it's all working, but 
man alive, you, you've, got a, you've got a God living with you. And I want to know a little bit more about that. In our dispensation, the power of God is not known through flocks or herds or conquering land or Canaanite kings. But we're told in the New Testament that God's power and his presence are known through the good works God has called us to join him in. His power and presence are known through the way that we love one another. They're known through the way we avoid sin. They're known through our unity with fellow Christians. His power and his presence are known through our suffering with Christ, for Christ, and through his working in our weakness. The New Testament says, hey, if you want to have God's strength operating in and through your life in a way that causes the world to sit up and take notice, here's how it works. It works through your weakness. It works through your suffering for the sake of the gospel. It works through um, your avoiding sin. It works through your love for the people around you. It works through your unity in the church local and the church universal. These are the ways that God uh, broadcasts his presence and his power in and through our lives. And so, when we are living as Christians, right, when we are exercising our faith, when, when we are walking with the Lord, it makes the world notice. Faithful Christian living produces an effective Christian witness. And so uh, we go to the New Testament and say, okay, Lord, I want you to be known through my life. And the New Testament says, here's how God is known through the lives of his people in this day and age. Though delivered by the lips of a pagan, what a beautiful reminder it is that God is with us in everything we do, everything, every aspect of your life, every relationship, every endeavor, every desire of your heart. God is with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. That's not just some faraway ethereal promise for going to heaven. That, that is, hey, he is always with you. He never leaves you or forsakes you. God is never too tired. He's never held back late at the office on business. He's never checked out. He's never disinterested. He is always interested in you, always in love with you, always pouring out his grace and his truth and his hope into your life if we're willing to receive it. He not only cares about every aspect of your life, but he wants to support and infuse every aspect of your life with his grace and his peace and his power and his joy. And what a great comfort to just sort of sit back and realize, okay, these different roles that we have to play as, um, uh, as children, as students, as employees, as employers, as husbands, as wives, as parents, as citizens, as friends, you know, all of these different things that we kind of have to navigate through life being, the Lord says, yeah, 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 I want to be involved in all of that. I want to support what, what's going on in your life in every one of those aspects. I want to infuse every single one of those, those areas of your life with my truth and my joy and my grace and my satisfaction and my contentment. There's no product, there's no uh, program, there's no code that can do that in our regular life, right? You know, that's why the famous uh, ad campaign, there's an app for that, right? A different app for each different thing. There is no master app that does it all. There's not even a master device that does it all, no matter how much they try. And God says, I want to take the whole of who you are from the inside out, and I want to infuse it with who I am. 
all of my grace and all of my power and all of my ability working through you to not only benefit your life and to give you torrents of living water, but to to make it so that we can participate in what the eternal God is doing in this world. I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing. Verse 23 says, Swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and descendants as I have been loyal to you, so you will be loyal to me and to the country where you are a resident alien. Abimelech turns up the pressure. He demands that Abraham sign on the dotted line here and now with his armed general sitting next to him. And he adds that subtle detail there. You are a resident alien, after all, living here because I let you live here. And so this isn't, it's not that he has him at knife point, but this is not a very simple situation. And there's pressure here. Uh, There is probably some discomfort in this meeting. It was a reminder to Abraham that as far as Abimelech was concerned, Abraham had no claim to rights or property in that region. He said, this is my country. You live here because I say it's okay. But what was actually true? The truth was that all of this land and much more besides belonged to Abraham. He was the owner of that whole region and way more besides. Why? Because God said so. He says, I'm giving that all this land to you and your descendants forever. It's yours. You and I may be trod upon by this world. We may find ourselves being treated in this sort of way by some Abimelech in our life. But this is the greater truth, the real truth. Because we are in Christ, we will one day rule and reign with the true king of all the world. And nobody can take that from you. Uh, the, the Lord is coming, and we are going to come with him, and we are going to rule and reign in this world. Notice that Abimelech did not ask Abraham to come to his temple or to appeal to his, his gods. He knew they didn't answer calls. It's important that we show the world that our God actually speaks that he really hears, that he really moves. The gods of this world do not do that, right? Whether they're pagan gods, like like the Philistines would worship, or Ninevites would worship, or, you know, Aztecs would worship, all the way into our fancy modern gods, who, you know, aren't so silly but are just as bad, they don't respond. They don't actually speak. They don't move on behalf of their people. Uh, the, The gods of the human heart enslave and destroy people, Right? And so it's really important that we explain to the world and show the world that our God really speaks and he really hears. It's not that we make things up, but our God really is different from any other because he is real. And all the rest come from the imagination of man or from the um, selfish, sinful desires of the human heart. Isaiah 45 talks again and again, God speaking in Isaiah 45, and he says again and again, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am God and there is no other. And he talks about how he proves himself and that he is a savior and that he establishes and that he strengthens and that he directs and that he calls by name. That's who our God is, a real person, a real living God who is mindful of what is going on, not just in your life, but the lives of all the people around you, the lives of everyone on this earth. Sadly, in some territories of Christianity, it's fashionable to suggest that, well, you can't really know the truth of God. You can't trust the Bible. You can't really understand any of that stuff, so just kind of give up on it. Or in some areas of Christianity, it's fashionable to just say, well, the best that God does is just leaves us broken, but let's all just kind of wallow around in weird brokenness all the time. Why would unbelievers come to a God like that? 
a God who doesn't actually give us of himself, give us grace and give us hope and give us answers and, and give us insight and give us direction and build us up. The Lord says, I'm going to make you like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit season after season. That's the God that we're trying to communicate to the world. And you know what? That's the God that Abimelech saw in Abraham's life. Abimelech asked Abraham to show him the Hebrew word hesed. It means to deal gently and kindly. One commentator defines it this way, a voluntary commitment by a stronger party to meet the needs of a weaker party. So Abimelech comes to him and says, show me hesed, please. Um, And you know, what a beautiful thing. This is what God has done to us. He has shown us hesed. He has voluntarily, as as the strongest party of all, come to us, the weaker party, parties, undeserving though we are, and voluntarily made the d- choice to deal gently and kindly with us. And since this is what God has done to us, he now sends us to go and do likewise to the world around us. Verse 24, Abraham said, I swear it. When King Jesus came to Abraham's tent a few passages ago, we saw Abraham got all worked up. I mean, you might even say he was nervous, right? He's running all around. He's going to talk to Sarah. He's going to talk to this guy, get a calf, do this, make some bread. And we see he's, he's all hustling and bustling around just to make sure everything was right. It's interesting to see, in contrast, how peaceful he is in this scene. When a powerful heathen king shows up with his general in tow and starts talking about how he's worried that they might have conflict in the future and that, after all, Abraham has no right to be there anyway, and yet Abraham's not shaken in his sandals. He's not wringing his hands. He's at peace because by this point in his life, he understands that his stability does not come from some Philistine. His stability and his security and his hope comes from the Lord. And so this guy can say whatever he wants about his land and, and, and my rights and all these things, but Abraham knows who he believes, and he knows what he's really headed towards, and he knows where his hope and his help comes from. He also shows us that it is okay to have dealings with non-believers. God doesn't want us to go into some weird monastery or convent up at the top of a mountain and seal ourselves off and just, you know, hopefully the, you know, the EMP hits the rest of the world and not us. That's not what the Lord wants. Abraham here enters into a binding contract with these guys, and we saw that he also had uh, agreements with um, some other uh, Canaanite guys when he was over living at the Oaks of Mamre. Now, Abraham doesn't compromise when he gets into an agreement with these guys, but there wasn't anything wrong with this covenant they were making. In fact, it was a good thing to have a peace accord. As Christians, we are commanded to be peacemakers— James says that we are to cultivate peace in our lives and in our world. He says, hey, you need to cultivate peace. That's a hard thing to do. And it's going to require that we interact with those who are not believers and try to bring them along into peace as we're preaching the gospel to them. Verse 25 says, but Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized. Ah, now that they were covenanted together there was a problem. You see, some of Abimelech's servants had come and violently seized a well that Abraham dug some time before. Now, this is interesting because up till this point, Abraham had been willing to graciously just let it go. He was willing to just graciously accept that offense and not make an issue of it. He didn't bring up the case to Abimelech's palace before this agreement. 
He didn't organize a counterstrike against these thieves. He didn't go and burn down one of Abimelech's wells. You know, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. He didn't do any of that. He was gracious, and in that situation, he was willing to be wronged. But now, he says, okay, well, now we're in a hesed relationship. Now we're bound together, and, and you and I are in this uh, partnership, this peace accord uh, based on lo- loyalty and kindness, and so this issue needed to be dealt with because the whole agreement was about how these people were going to treat each other from here on out. And so Abraham has to say, yeah, that's great. By the way, you're already in violation of what you came here to agree to me with. Now, Abraham did not try to solve his problem in a vengeful way. He didn't demand the servants be drawn and quartered. When he says he complained there, your version may say rebuked. It can mean to determine what is right. And so he brings this issue up. uh, And and Derek Kidner, a great Bible commentator, shares that the verb used here suggests that Abraham had to bring this issue up several times in their meeting. And so it seems that Abimelech, slippering around a little bit, he really wasn't wanting to deal with this at first, but it needed to be dealt with. Not because Abraham was unwilling to be wronged, but because it was now a barrier in his relationship with Abimelech. It wasn't about the well per se. He had let that go. But now he says, okay, now we are in a different level of relationship together, and there is a problem, and and part of us being in a proper relationship of peace together, we have to deal with this. We have to deal with this conflict and resolve it together. So sometimes God asks us to be wronged and to not retaliate or not even bring it up. But sometimes we're going to have to graciously engage in conflict resolution. When we're standing up for something, a good litmus test of whether the Lord would have us do it or not is, am I standing up for something? Am I entering into this level of conflict? Number one, am I doing it graciously? Am I doing it compassionately? Am I doing it humbly? Okay. But then the other part is what I'm standing up for, what I'm getting, you know, tangled up in here, is it for justice and for peace? Or is it just so I can have an easier experience in my personal life? It might be a good test to apply to uh, these situations. Verse 26, Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing, and you didn't tell me, nor have I heard of it until today. So effectively, Abimelech blames Abraham. Did he know about this well issue? Maybe, maybe not. But true to human form, he did not want to take responsibility. It's your fault that you got robbed. Okay, thanks. When we're preaching the gospel, people have to be told that they are in the wrong. Abraham had to say, hey man, this all sounds great, but you're in the wrong, and we have to deal with that. So when we are preaching the gospel, it's the good news, but good news is only good if it's dealing with bad news, right? In, 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 in a salvific sense. People have to know that they are in the wrong, that they are guilty of an infraction, of many infractions, before God. Now, the guilt of sin shouldn't make us hate people. We don't want to hate people. God hates sin, but he doesn't hate people. He loves people. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then he calls us into that same kind of behavior towards others. The whole point is that we want unbelievers to be brought into fellowship with our Savior and also into fellowship with us. But for that to happen, they will have to take responsibility and own up to their sin and be willing to come to the table and make peace. And if they're unwilling to do all of that, there's only so much relationship you can be in with them. 
Verse 27, so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two of them made a covenant. They cut a covenant much like God had with Abraham back in chapter 15. Even though Abimelech was the one that came wanting a deal, Abraham was willing to finance the peace. And so throughout, we see Abraham carrying himself with grace and patience and humility and a willingness to do what needs doing so that people could live together harmoniously. So this guy shows up with his general, probably armed, and he says, we're going to make a peace accord. And Abraham says, well, where's 50% of the sheep? I'm not, I'm not going to pay for the whole thing. He says, yeah, man, like, I'll, I'll cover it. This was your idea. You've already broken the terms of this agreement. You're kind of trying to strong arm me. But you know what? I want to develop a healthy, loyal peace with you. And so I'll pay for it. I'll give you the flocks and the herds, and I'll give the, the sheep so that we can do this and do it right. Verse 28, Abraham separated seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech said to Abraham, why have you separated these seven ewe lambs? And he replied, you are to accept the seven ewe lambs from me so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. So Abraham added a clause of his own to the contract, and he had to explain his methods to Abimelech who didn't quite understand. It's a great devotional image for us. God has ways of doing business. He has ways of doing things. He has means and methods that he wants us to use in our work, in our relationships, in our way of living. They won't always make sense to unbelievers, and so we're going to need to explain them to them. This covenant, like others, had to be sealed in blood. Of course, we're reminded that we were once the pagan Philistine thieves. We were the ones carrying on in ignorance and iniquity. We were the guilty parties who had wronged the innocent person, Jesus. But a lamb was slain so that we could have peace with God if we're willing to agree to his terms of the covenant. And so, great image there. Abraham's addition to this agreement highlights the fact that he dug the well in question. The Bible, even the New Testament, is not against the idea of personal property. There are some who suggest that since Jesus told the rich young ruler that he should sell all his belongings, and since uh, the, the first Christians in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost lived more communally, there are some who suggest, there you go, Jesus and the New Testament say you can't have private property, you can't own anything. That's a very inconsistent interpretation of the Bible. Now listen, Jesus might ask you to sell everything you have. He might. He does that from time to time. But until he directs you to do that, the Bible is not anti-personal property. God loves to give us things that we can use to serve him and glorify him and bless others. Someone owned a fully furnished upper room that Jesus got to have his last supper in. Someone owned the donkey our Lord would borrow to ride into Jerusalem. He didn't say, this is my donkey now. He said, the master just needs to use it. And then we're going to give that thing back, right? Lydia, the seller of purple in the book of Acts, was able to use her home for the furtherance of the gospel. Abraham's wells were used to slake the thirst of many weary creatures and people. Even then, the New Testament does not teach that your belongings are only given to you to be used for others. We are to use our possessions for others, but not only. It's not the only purpose that God blesses us with material belongings, right? Paul owned a cloak that he wanted for himself. He said, I forgot my cloak. Please bring it. And Timothy didn't say, it's not really your cloak, is it? He didn't do that. He said, all right, man, I'll bring your cloak. 
Peter told Ananias and Sapphira famously, he says, hey, your land and the proceeds from the sale of your land, he said, that is yours, that is your possession to be used at your disposal, Peter said. The problem wasn't that they owned the land. The problem was that they lied to the Holy Spirit. If you want a distilled teaching on the biblical perspective on Christian private property, just read 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Verse 31 of our text, Therefore that place was called Beersheba because it was there that the two of them swore an oath. The name means well of the oath or well of seven. Beersheba would later become part of Simeon's tribal inheritance, and it would be the southernmost part of Israel's land. They'd use it as a saying, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. Verse 32, after they had made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abimelech was interested in Abraham and his God. He wanted to have a connection and hopefully get a proximity blessing. But sadly, that's where his interest stopped. Abimelech didn't inquire as to how he might get to know this God who dwells with people and blesses them and, and, and is, is present in their lives. And he didn't ask to become part of Abraham's house, of course. To do so would have required him to renounce his throne and bow down himself. And so he wasn't going to do that, interested though he was. Of course, that is what is necessary. If we are to come into the house of the Lord our God, we must renounce all claims to the throne of our lives. And that's okay because we're just pretenders anyway. Uh, You are just a pretender king or queen on the throne of your life. Me too. Uh, Jesus is king. And if you don't own Jesus as king, well, sin is king, and it's enslaving you, and it's going to kill you. We must bow our hearts before him and acknowledge that he is king of all, including our own lives. Verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Planting a tree signals several things. First, it suggests that Abraham assumed he'd be there quite a while. It also assumes that he'd have the water necessary to keep a tree alive. There's something else here, though. Abimelech wanted Abraham to get the message that he was an outsider, right? He brings that up on purpose, that he was not one of them, that he was there because they felt like letting him be there. Fair enough. But despite his outsider status, what do we see? We see Abraham cultivating and developing. He's planting trees. He's digging wells. He's raising flocks and ranging herds. And even though we know that Abraham did not consider this his home, he looked forward to a city whose builder and maker is God, we still see that he made it his business to benefit and enrich the world around him. What were the Philistines doing in this text? The unbelievers, thieving, strong-arming, intimidating, throwing their weight around. But God's family was producing. God's family was, uh, was a blessing in the place where they lived. God's family was fruitful. And as they went about their pilgrim business, they worshiped God and called on his name, and they reminded themselves of God's everlasting faithfulness, his never-ending power, and the presence of God in their lives, therefore shone like a light in the dark. Verse 34, and Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the Philistines for many days. What does it mean to live as an alien? It's an important question because we're told outright that we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We are aliens as far as the New Testament is concerned. To live as an alien means that we seek for the coming city, the new Jerusalem, because we have no enduring city here on earth, the Bible says. To live as an alien means to abstain from sinful desires, which will cause unbelievers to glorify God as they watch us. 
It means to do the will of God, even if that means being wronged for his sake. That sort of life not only makes the world sit up and notice, but makes us a blessing to our communities. Larry Ellison wants to create a utopia. It's a lofty goal. I got nothing against Larry. His plan is to change the world's food supply, he says, the world's health systems and global transportation. He has these really huge lofty goals. How's he doing a decade into his plan? Well, he's built a lot on his acreage, and he does employ quite a few people there on the island. As for the wider world and his utopia, here's what we've got. A $3,000 a night spa you can go to. That's it. (laughs) And at this spa, the staff will track guest sleep quality, nutrition, and blood flow. That's not creepy at all. You want to track my blood flow? I don't even know what that means, right? You want to harvest my blood? That's what I hear when you say you want to track my blood flow. Anyway, God wants to revolutionize this world much more than Larry Ellison does. And he's got a great plan to do it. You, you are the plan. God wants to use you to revolutionize the community that you find yourselves in. You're the ambassador he has put in place so that you can meet some Abimelech. As one commentator noted, Christians should live in such a way that if we were removed from our community, it would be a tragedy. Not, not an exciting thing. And so we are pilgrims, not stirring up conflict, but bringing peace and truth and hope and integrity and a testimony of God's powerful presence in the lives of his people to the praise of the glory of his grace.